Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, it probably comes as no surprise, but women's fertility isn't exactly in my wheelhouse of expertise. But on this show today is Nicole Liu. Now, she is the founder of Kin KIN Fertility, a telehealth platform providing ongoing reproductive healthcare and knowledge for women. The idea of Kin began when Nicole was misdiagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS and was also told she would be infertile. But she had a lot of questions, and she relentlessly looked into the fertility space and realised the knowledge around reproduction is either fragmented or indeed lacking. Because quite frankly, women's health is still one of the last things that remain taboo and unfortunately somewhat stigmatised. So there's a real need for better access to quality health information and healthcare for women. Kin launched back in February in 2020 and is now backed by the Eucalyptus Venture Capitalist. Some of you may remember I actually chatted to one of the founders, Tim Doyle, on my podcast last year. Kin's slogan is, we exist to raise the standards of reproductive health, which I think there is no better way to describe what Kin does. Nicole and I chat about how do you create an environment that encourages business growth? How do you fill the content for something so complex? How do you build a robust community? How do you use technical experts? How do you find investors, particularly those who believe in your mission and will support you from the very beginning until you reach your final goals? So let's get into it. Nicole Liu, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to have to unpack a whole lot of stuff here. Um, It's sort of relatively speaking complicated in terms of their skin fertility. There's a whole lot of stuff going on, but I, I do want to uh, sort of uh, track back a little bit. Um, you don't look like you're very old, so I don't know if I can go back that far, but um, let's go back to uh, um, you you from Sydney. Where, where are you from? Yeah, what, born and bred in Sydney. Your Chinese background, Chinese parents? Yeah, China. that's right. But did they come from China? Yes. Right, okay, cool. And uh, has mum and dad ever been involved in anything like this? Like uh, what was their story in terms of what they did for a job? Yeah. So um, as soon as they came to Australia, like mom and dad actually came here with absolutely, like I would say less than $5 back then. Um, They didn't speak the language at all. And so they grew up um, having to like start new businesses for a living. Um, So one of the first businesses they ever started in Australia was actually one where 
they sold um, IT equipment and computers back then, which was like really? the height of a dot-com boom. Yeah, they sort of like got on that um, and just like had a lot of clients at the time that were like, um, you know, Chinese speaking and they really tapped into that community. So that's how they started. And ever since then, they've like constantly started small businesses. Um, you know, some succeed, some fail, uh, but they've done everything between like, you know, selling curtains and installing curtains. Um, they had their own like embroidery business for uh, uniforms and clothes. Uh, at one point, they also had like an Italian franchise, like a uh, like an eatery. Um, so it was called like Bon Appetito. We sold pizza, lasagna. Serious? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very random. And did you ever work in those environments? Yeah, growing up, like it was like my absolute like excursion. I'm going, going to wherever they were working. Like I'd love the offices. I would pretend um, I'd go into their like Italian eatery and I would like be selling people pizzas and people thought like I was adorable. Um, I used to go into the factories and stuff and just like make my own clothes. Um, so it was all, yeah, it was a lot of fun growing up. Yeah. Well, I, I, I often wonder why say someone like your parents, for example, um, left China and came to Australia. Was it they were fleeing from something or they were chasing something better? I mean, do you have, have you ever asked your parents? Yeah, I think there are a variety of reasons. Like I think back then it's and it's similar to like I think how some Australians feel about going overseas nowadays as well. There are different opportunities that you can get when you're overseas and it's just like a total adventure. And I think like um, my mom, she already had a job lined up in China that was to do with like teaching. And I think for her, um, that was something her mom had done. And so she kind of wanted something different for herself. And Australia was just like an absolute dream for her. Like she wanted to learn English. She wanted to develop that skill. And it also just seemed like a land of heaps of different opportunities. And she wanted to tap into that. Um, similar to my dad, I think he had a, what did he have? He had an education in radio telecommunications. Um, and I think he just wanted to learn something different. He wanted to make something for himself. Um, and he thought the way to do that was like find opportunities in Australia and sort of like start from there. Would you call them like adventurers? Like to be honest, you're leaving China, can't speak the lingo. You're going to arrive in Australia, like culturally totally different, you know, don't come with any money. Uh, that's a big adventure. That's like say me saying to you tomorrow, you and your husband or your partner, um, why don't you take off and go and live in somewhere in Africa uh, where they speak, uh, you know, some other dialect of African or wherever it is. And uh, there's no money, um, but there's a few mountains to climb. It should be fun. So, you know, like that's pretty out there. Yeah, I definitely say like there's definitely an element of adventure. I think like especially coming to Australia for them with um, like starting off with nothing. I think it was an element of like adventure. But since then, they've really had to like work really hard. So I'd almost say back then for them, it was a lot more about like ambition and wanting to like prove to themselves that they could do something. Um, and it was a lot more about that than like having heaps of fun. And I think they just like had a lot of fun doing it in the end anyway. Have you got brothers and sisters or you're the only kid? No, I have a little brother, four years younger. Little brother. It's interesting to me because um, whenever I talk about adventure, I mean, really what I'm talking about is taking a risk for a, a reward. It doesn't necessarily have to be fun, um, but it is risk rewards are related. And uh, whenever we sort of embark on those so-called risk rewards and it is an adventure that's a bit out there, what we ultimately find is that uh, 1% of it is that and the rest of the other 99% of it's actually hard work, effort, effort, effort and continued efforts after each other. Um, how much do you think of that as rubbed off on, say, you and your brother, like that uh, sense of risk-taking? And it doesn't have to be a massive risk, but sense of risk-taking for reward. How important do you think you're watching your mum and dad going in and out of business deals, some work, some didn't work, but they always – tails up and heads down and worked really hard. How much of that has rubbed off on you? 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because growing up, um, it was a really funny dynamic where like I, my parents would always like start all these new businesses, but fundamentally they didn't actually want that for either me or my brother because ultimately like they came here and they had to start small businesses. And so they had to ride the highs and lows and the volatility and the risk that came with starting all these new businesses. So growing up, they were very much like, you know, Nicole, Ben, um, we want you to get into a big corporation. We want you to get your education. We want you to go into a job that is super stable um, and then sort of like rise through the ranks there. Like that was their goal for us. And I've always been a little bit stubborn, but like when your parents kind of say, hey, don't do this, uh, my instant reaction is like, okay, I've got to do it. Um, And so that sort of like that part rubbed off. But I also think like seeing them constantly start new things, that was really exciting to me. Like I think there was something fascinating about, you know, going from, absolutely nothing um putting a little money behind it starting from like you know, they like barely wrote like a page of a business plan um and just going out and starting something and seeing that grow and seeing them sort of like hustle through that that was really exciting for me i think i really learned this sense of um and i've always grown up loving building stuff whether it was legos or i've really gone into like renovations lately um and just like, building something from scratch i think that was something that they accidentally instilled in me very early on and i've always had that itch to do something I barely, I don't think I ever have seen them like take many days off. Um, they're constantly thinking about their businesses. They're constantly thinking about how to improve. They're constantly thinking about the next business. Um, and so it's just like nonstop work, working for them. And I think seeing them persevere in order to give me and my brother the opportunities that they've been able to give us, you, you never want to take that for granted. And so I think that really instills work ethic, wanting to make sure that everything they did for us is going to be worth it and making sure that we're giving back by like also making the most of the opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I'm the first generation Australian born with European family. My family wanted me to go and do what my dad did um, and they and my brother and they pushed us through university and not didn't push us but sort of encouraged us. But ultimately I ended up doing what they did anyway but it's just in a different format but with the background of university degree. So we often look at the Chinese community in particular and the Vietnamese community to, be, to some extent as well um, but Chinese community is quite a big community in Australia. We look at the Chinese community, we see how dedicated the kids are to obtaining university degrees, et cetera. But most of the, a lot of the new innovations actually getting done by Chinese kids with uh, education sitting behind them. Um, and it's sort of nearly like a, nearly like a proverb now, you know, um, you know Chinese kids, first generation born, do really well at school, get into the best spots at university, I noticed you got in a BCom degree at UNSW. That means you've got to get more than 98% or something like that in the HSC um, because it's one of the hardest degrees to get into at that university and indeed generally most universities. Whilst you just said that um, if your parents tell you not to do something, you want to do it, I see you as someone who's actually fits perfectly into the mould. Uh, you've gone and did, probably did well at school. You're probably a good girl when you're at school. You went to university, got into a good university, did your university degree, and then you've gone and done something with that degree, which is we're going to talk about shortly, um, um, outside of your work experience, what I say work experience, working for big organisations for a couple of years. Do you ever look at yourself like that? That um, I, actually, I actually did exactly what probably – my parents would have dreamed of. Yeah, I think like it's um, definitely funny. I think from the, and I'm like, I've always been really eager to please. Um, and that's especially true when it comes to my parents in some aspects as well. So definitely in the early days, I would say we were very much like, you know, 
um, study very hard, get into the education and the like uni degree that, um, you know, would set me up really well. I think like, I've always been long-term focused that way as well. Um, and then there was sort of like some elements at the back end of uni um, and even like uh, starting out working where it probably deviated a little bit from what they wanted um, and then sort of like went back and forth. In going into uni, I had actually received a scholarship. It was known as the co-op scholarship. Um, and towards the back end of uni, probably like my last year, I actually decided to quit the scholarship um, in order to pursue something that I really wanted for myself. At the time, the choice was between doing an honours program and like doing a thesis for a whole year. And I didn't really love studying. I really loved being in the workforce, getting hands-on experience. And so I quit um, the scholarship in order to uh, do venture capital and like get a role in there and like really get excited and learn more about startups and investing. Um, and that was like a really, really exciting year for me. Tell us, how did you get into the venture capital? Like, how did you get into a job? And what venture capital organization was it? Yeah, so it was an awesome um, venture capital organization called Reinventure. It's Westpac's independent yeah. AC arm. They just invested in Coinbase, um, one of their famous investments. They're sort of a fintech investor. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, and at the time, the venture capital industry was like relatively small. Um, I don't think internships in venture capital was like a huge thing. Um, but I noticed that they were doing um, this, it was like a startup dating thing where like you do all these speed dating interviews with all these startups and they just happened to be one of the like startups in the co-working space that was doing all the interviews. Um, so I had spoken to Rowan, who is now the, one of the managing partners there, loved what they were doing, really excited. And I think like I just had the skill set from um, coming from like an investment banking background uh, before that. It was supposed to be like a three month internship and I managed to keep the job and cling on for a whole year. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I always wanted to be really close to startups and really close to small businesses. And this was sort of my way to do that. Um, and coming from investment banking where like people work really hard, but aren't necessarily passionate about their job. People in startups were just like super passionate about the mission and like what their products were all about. They were super excited about what they were doing. They were like growing like crazy. It was just like a different type of energy to corporate. That whole year was really game changing for me because all of a sudden I realized that this is probably what I want to do with my life longer term. What skills do you get from working at a place like reInventure when you're on the on the buy side? So you're on the buy side of the startup world. In other words, you're an organization, reinvention organization that may invest in a startup or sponsor it. They do many, many, and as you say, it's largely backed by Westpac. Um, what skills do you get as a startup yourself? What do you draw out of that as a skill? What do you learn? Yeah, when I joined, I think I was fourth or fifth person there. So it was, it was like you said, a startup in and of itself. What I learned was that there's a couple of things. I think the biggest thing for me was how to be super autonomous and how to take initiative because no one else will do it for you. Um, we were such a small team. If there was an opportunity or like you saw a gap um, or you saw a problem that like you could solve or you could have a crack at it, you didn't have to have the credentials. You didn't have to have, you know, experience doing it. I had absolutely no experience in startups. You could just take a crack and by like focusing your efforts and being the person who spends the most time on that problem or thinks about that problem the most, you could be the one to help solve it or at least push it forward. So you got permission. You almost didn't need permission by way of title because yeah. it was just sitting there and no one was touching it because of there's not that many resources and there's an abundant amount of problems. Um, and so just finding those problems that interest you and was always like really, really encouraged. And that's very true of startups in general as well. 
I think like um, one of the my, one of my favorite lessons um, from Jani and Simon and Rowan was this idea in venture capital of have strong ideas loosely held. Venture capital actually helped me find my voice, have my own opinion, because you had to have an opinion if you were going to invest in something. You had to have a thesis if you were going to invest in something. What they really taught me was that you can have that while still being really open to new information because you're ultimately not going to know everything. So this idea of strong ideas loosely held was very much speak your mind, have a basis for what arguments you're making and why you think a certain way, but be really open to debate and be really open to new ideas and new opinions because that will ultimately inform yours and make it will push each other to better thinking and better decisions. Venture capital very early on for me was my way of finding my voice, my confidence, sharing my opinions out loud. Before that, I probably was like way more reserved about like how I was thinking. That's interesting. Um, uh, especially the reserve part, because you know you're a at that stage you would have been a, a young female Chinese, you know, parentage, probably surrounded by a whole lot of guys um, in a startup environment, funded by a, you know a massive organisation like Westpac, and you probably were at a posi- in a position. But you know, there as you say, that, by the way, there is a sort of open ended permission um, for people to speak their mind to say what what's important. But you have to grow into that. That's not an easy thing to do. And so for anyone who might be watching or listening to this, um, you know, who are thinking to themselves, you know, how, how do I start up my own start or kick off my own startup, you know, et cetera. Um, you just said something really important. That is it's not enough to have an idea. You must pursue the idea. Um, but you've got to actually build a thesis around it. You can't just have something and a robust thesis, by the way. You know, just don't say, oh, I've got an idea. I think we can fix it by doing this. That's flippant by having the open mind, as you say, the open mind to be able to accept criticism, constructive criticism. Because a lot of people we know, they get these great ideas and they, they spend a lot of time on it, then you try to say something to them about it and they want to argue the, argue the toss with you. And all you're trying to do is actually add to whatever it is they've done. So that skill, that's a big skill, a big experience to build these theses up and be open to constructive criticism and change little things to refine and make it better. Exactly. Yeah. A big part of it is making sure you're in an environment or creating that environment where it's okay to not constantly be right, because there's no way that you can constantly be right. Like the way we learn and the way we grow and the way we progress is by learning new things. And by definition, that means we're not always right. Making sure we have those environments where it's okay to fail, it's okay to be wrong, gives you more confidence to take many more cracks at it. Yeah, that environment's sort of a little bit like a medical lab or a biology lab where there's lots of collaboration. The researchers sitting there looking at stuff and they're always leaning on all their supervisors and professors and various other people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines. The same in business. When you're in a, a startup, you're in a lab, and you've got to surround yourself with experts and, and or people who have specialised skills. But you've got to have a thesis. It's got to be well-researched. You've got to have expertise in the area and you've got to have people around who you're prepared to talk to and, and openly share the idea but be open enough to be able to make a change midstream. I don't mean a complete change but a change midstream, these mentors. That must have been a fantastic experience for you. Maybe you tell me the story about how you got into women's health or what I call, what you call femtech. Yeah. So after venture capital, um, I actually decided to actually take a lot more advice from my parents and start in more of a corporate job. Um, and so I ended up in management consulting at a company called McKinsey, 
uh, for two and a half years, really learning the tools of the trade. It's a job where you go into when you're not totally sure about what you want to do, but you learn fantastic skills that are quite like generalist in nature, um, how to do problem solving, how to think about business strategy, how to lead teams, how to communicate really well. And so that was a really good experience for me, just a toolkit that you need to feel more confident about how you operate and how you think about businesses and how you manage people. That gave me a lot more confidence sort of like starting my own thing um, when it came to it. But I actually left consulting um, thinking that I wanted to work in a startup. So I had left my job with absolutely nothing. Um, I didn't have a plan. I just knew that uh, it was time and I wanted to spend the time to look at what my options were and what I wanted to do. And I was sort of ready to take quite a long time to do that. So I'd left, I'd started exploring, you know, roles in product management. Um, at the same time, I was coming off the back of consulting. I was relatively burnt out physically. And so I was doing a lot of you know, physical health checks. Um, and one of them that I got offered was a fertility check. And it's um, like a fertility hormone test. And essentially, when I got my results, I was 24 at the time. And the doctor had essentially told me that I had polycystic ovary syndrome. It's a condition known as PCOS. Uh, one in 10 women have it. And then he told me that I was going to be infertile. And so I spent weeks uh, on Google, unsure. I was so anxious at the time. I was 24, so I didn't even know that I wanted children. But to have that sort of option ripped away from me or like told that it was going to not be a thing made me think a lot more about it and uh, I didn't really know how to feel. So after a few weeks, I went to a specialist and the specialist ended up telling me that not only did my results not indicate that I had PCOS, I didn't actually have it. It was a misdiagnosis. Also, even if I did have it, it didn't mean that I would be infertile. And so it was like misinformation as well. I walked out of it being like, that's such a weird situation. I can't believe that happened to me. Wow, it must be unlucky. And so I went and talked to my friends about it. And the weirdest thing to hear back when you think something weird has happened to you, other words, me too, or, oh, I know someone that that happened to as well. That was sort of the sort of like turning point for me where I realized that there's not very good information about women's health or women's reproductive health. It wasn't really a conversation that me and my friends really talked about at all, but it was really important and like it's stuff that we should talk about. And so that was sort of the turning point for me. And we started Kin to give better education and better like information to people about their reproductive health, about their own bodies, about the decisions that they make for their bodies in order for them to make better decisions. Was it a business idea as well, or was it just started off as, a, as an information place? In my head, I wanted it to be something more, but at the beginning, um, I wasn't sure what that something was. And so we actually just started with content and we started up an Instagram page, a website, and then basically connected um, a fertility specialist with a really talented author or a really talented writer. Um, and put them two together so that it was basically really good clinical evidence-backed information, so a source of truth, backed with someone who can like turn that into something that would be digestible and easy to read and something you'd want to engage with. And um, yeah, the whole goal of it was really like, how can we get accurate information that was easy to understand, easy to digest, and left you with more answers than questions, which is kind of what I was finding on Google when I was like trying to answer the questions for me. It was like, you had a spectrum of, uh, you know, doctors or specialists who are writing really good information, but like you couldn't really understand it because it was in doctor speak. Or you had um, sort of the forums where like it was very anecdotal, uh, sample size of one, like this happened to me, here's some myth that I heard, is it true? I don't know. So it was all this conflicting information and we really wanted to cut through that with good evidence-backed information that was easy to understand. Yeah, so you, you didn't want to have something that was so complicated no one could understand it at the same time. You didn't want to have like a core... <laughs> 
style forum where you just got uh, random people saying, well, this is my experience. You don't know whether it's all, they're, they're full of shit or what, or they're imagining it or they actually had the experience or, you know, how much reliance you can place on that. But you start off kin as a, an accurate digestible information site for women about fertility. Did it become popular? Yeah. I think when you start something like that, all you're trying to answer is, does anyone out there care about it as much as I do? Does anyone actually care? And so it quickly got a lot of views. A lot of people were like giving us a lot of feedback around it. We had guides around PCOS, endometriosis, um, infertility, things like that. And people who were going through those journeys would reach out and be like, this is excellent. You'd see people spend so much time on the page and on the site. Engagement was really high quality as well. It got really good traction very early on. Okay, so we're going to go to the break. When I come back from the break, I'm going to ask you how you turned that into a business model. How did you then tap into various investors? Which investors did you get to help you sort of expand this out? Because obviously it requires money and capital to do that sort of stuff, which sort of goes right back to your uh, earlier reinventure experience as well. How you drag those two lots of experience and turn this into a business model. So let's go to the break and we'll come straight back. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, we're back from our break and Nicole Lou has just told us about her journey to get Kin up and running, um, sort of more as an information site. But what I'm really keen to know now about is about how did she get this thing funded and also how she used her experiences at the various places where she worked prior to that as to turning into a business model. But before I do that, I'd like to ask, just explain to me where is Kin today? What is it doing and what do your numbers look like and what's your audience look like and how are you helping people and how have you developed that information page into what it is today? Good question. Yeah, so essentially KIN now, our mission, and it always has been, it was to empower women to take control of the decisions that impact their bodies and their reproductive health. We've always thought about this as part of a big fertility journey, all the way from you know your first period, contraception, conception, pregnancy, postpartum. And sort of where we started was we decided to launch Australia's first uh, subscription service to the contraceptive pill. And that gained uh, traction really quickly. I think within a year, we got over 40,000 members signed up to do, um, to like be on subscription and like access the pill through us. Does that mean if I was a female, I pay a subscription to you or to the website to have access to like telehealth? Yeah. So essentially how it works is you pay the membership fee and you get unlimited access to doctors all year round. But telehealth. telehealth. Yeah. 
as yeah. well as your your pill delivered to you on an automatic schedule. Right. And does your pill get like a chemist warehouse or a discount chemist? Do I pick it up or does it get delivered to my home? Completely delivered. So we partner with partner pharmacies around the country and that just gets delivered on an automatic schedule. Right. Okay. Perfect. We'll come back to the business model a little bit later. That's a product that you sell to your audience, to your customer base. What other things do you do in terms of telehealth? Like uh, are there consultations? How else does the website work? Yeah, so we started with what was essentially a telehealth model, which is in contraception. And we've now started to expand into the rest of the fertility journey. So really thinking about conception, pregnancy, postpartum, um, with the main problems there being like the journey is so overwhelming and it's really hard to know what the next step is and what to do. And so for us, we're very much like trying to bring all those um, questions and like what you're supposed to do and like guide you through that journey a lot easier. So a couple of the offerings we have there, we have a free checklist tool, which is completely personalized to you. And that tells you sort of like at your point of the journey based on your health information and your goals, uh, what are the things that you should do on your journey to make it a smoother journey and make that journey less overwhelming? Can I ask you, as a non-female, would you indulge me for a moment? The journey to where? Like you mean from the day girl has a first period or what is that journey? Yeah, I mean like we spend half our life, most of our early years, trying not to get pregnant and that's what we use contraception for largely. Um, And then we may turn around and decide that actually having children is something that we want at this stage of our life. And that transition is going from zero to one overnight. It becomes very all-consuming for some, some people. And because you haven't really talked about your fertility, you haven't really thought about your fertility proactively um, because it's always been a problem for the future, that sort of like journey where you flip is very, very overwhelming. Similarly, when you like transition between conception into pregnancy, you also have to learn all these new things that come with it as you're experiencing your pregnancy as well. And it's the same again when you go from pregnancy into becoming a new mother, learning, you know, whether it's breastfeeding or infant sleep, a lot of the stuff will all be new to you. And because we don't talk about it very often, because it is like relatively stigmatized, it's not something we're always necessarily prepared for. And so Kin is really there to help guide that journey a lot better and prepare you for the things that you need to be prepared for and help you make the decisions you need to make, but doing it in a way that isn't super overwhelming and anxiety ridden. Do people subscribe to you and go to your pages and read your stuff, engage with you because you're making it discreet? I mean, is it, is it, is it easier or quicker or I don't need to go to the doctor, I don't want to go and talk to the doctor because it's a hassle or I, I don't really want to talk to anybody face-to-face. I'd rather do it this way because it's a bit more anonymous. Mm. I think there's a couple of elements to it. Like if I take it back to what the problem actually is when it comes to that fertility journey, it's actually that the journey is super fragmented. So if you think about the care providers that we have, you can access along your fertility journey, uh, gynecologists, obstetricians, nurses, doctors, dietitians. There's a plethora of people that you need to access and they all will have like very different views. Uh, you think about the products that you access are very fragmented as well. Like there's specific brands focusing on vitamins, specific brands focusing on pregnancy tests, on breast pumps. They're also very fragmented and they're obviously spitting out the content that is most relevant to them and like will serve them really well. And then you've got sort of the content space, which is like even worse, where you've got forums, you've got books, you've got websites, you've got Dr. Google, like that's really, really fragmented. And what you end up with is this mess of conflicting information, conflicting views, conflicting perspectives, and you don't know what's what. And so what people are searching for is this one-stop shop, one place, one source of truth where they can trust and they can lean into to guide them on this journey that is very confusing. With Kin, what we're trying to do is bring all those elements together. 
So bring all the care practitioners that you need on one platform so that if you need to access them, like they're right there for you. We're bringing all the products that are your essentials. So uh, we've got prenatals, we've got, uh, you know, fertility lube. We're soon going to have a pregnancy and ovulation tests and many other products along the fertility journey. So becoming that one-stop shop for everything that you need. So you don't need to think about the difference between one or another product in the in chemist warehouse shelves. And then the last part is content. One source of truth that is easy to digest and easy to read, which has always been a big pillar for us to guide you on that journey so that you aren't overwhelmed with all the potential things that you need to think about because we'll guide you on the decisions that you need to make and tell you what you need to know when it's relevant to you. That's very interesting. So the one source of truth whereby all you can really claim, I guess, in these situations because no two scientists ever agree on anything and you know, effectively you're talking about human biology. So I think maybe what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong in your opinion, um, as a source of truth you're saying we are good at curating what we consider to be the best out there. There's sort of like two parts of this, right? One is the curation element in, in the sense of what is the latest science actually telling us about facts about our bodies or about our fertility and we're curating that part. But then there's also elements that are ultimately going to be subjective and people are going to have different perspectives based on their values, their like family goals as well. The source of truth isn't necessarily like what is science telling us um, and that's it. It's very much based on your values, based on um, the options that you want to have, based on your goals, based on your lifestyle, based on your health decisions or healthcare and health indications. What are the options that are available to you? And can we factually tell you what the pros and cons of each are in a very objective way? And then you tell us what the best decision is for you because that's very personal. And so it's less about jamming a philosophy down someone's throat because that's not what we're about at all. Everyone's fertility journey is different and we need to get that. But if you don't know your options, you don't have any. And so for us, we're very like, okay, objectively, what are your options? We do this with, with contraception as well. Like we're very open about not just the pill, but what does it look like to do an IUD or like natural contraception? What is best for you? But giving you your options in a very objective manner, um, telling you the information that you need to know what's relevant for you based on your information. So it's very personalized and specialized. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, there's a lot to hell, there's a lot to cover. And I mean, if you think, of, like if I think about it, well, you have thought about it, but if I think about it, I say, uh, you know, a girl has a period when never say she's on 10, 12, I don't know how old it is. And then right through to the day, I, I presume you cover menopause. So, um, you know, we're talking like a, a 40, 40, 50 year experience for a woman and then every woman's different. <laughs> There's so much to cover, um, you know, having an IVF, et cetera, I guess all those other things that go with it, uh, you know, including contraception. But so like that must, how, how big is your team? You must have a massive team. Yeah, so I think technically we have um, about uh, 20 full-time staff um, in Kent. This is going to bring me to the next point. How do you fund this? Well, how did you fund it originally? Very early on, um, as soon as we got traction, a big thing for us was at the point in time which we knew we were going to become like more of a business and actually think about going into healthcare. For us, we started getting almost like thousands and thousands of people um, looking at the content. And so we decided to just send out a survey trying to ask what people wanted. And we had a couple of ideas at the time. We had thought about the fertility hormone test, which we just launched. And one of the other ideas we had was contraception. And it was just like an overwhelming amount of positive, encouraging messages around like how we should definitely do it and how like it's a big problem for the people that we were surveying. And so that was like an obvious win for us. Off the back of that, we are in a position now where we like can do something. From that moment, it was very much like, okay, we're going to go into healthcare. 
you can't really screw around with people when it comes to healthcare. Like you don't have the right to um, build an MVP that doesn't work or that doesn't work right. So we knew very early on that we needed proper funding. We needed a proper engineering team. We needed specialists on board. We needed doctors on board. You had to do it right. And so very early on got funding from a company called uh, Eucalyptus who were also uh, in healthcare already. They um, essentially are like this, uh, call it like a accelerator or incubator that focus on healthcare technology and healthcare companies. Yeah, they've been on my podcast. I know them, yeah. 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 Um, so they have other companies now. At the time they had Pilot, um, which is all around like men's health. So they do prescription for erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation, hair loss, mental health, all things that are dear to men and like, um, like focused around discretion. When I sort of like started talking to Tim, he was the founder, he, I think, saw the problem very, very quickly, was very supportive of like the problem very early on. We kind of pitched him this idea of, uh, you know, there's a problem in fertility. It is super stigmatized. People don't talk about it enough. People are looking for this information. Here's proof um, of like engagement. Here's proof that people are looking for this information and want solutions around it. And he kind of took the bet on us based on a very, very deep problem, knowing that there will be solutions out there to solve it and we would uh, work together to figure out what those solutions were. What, what, do, you, what do you think was the, I mean, I, I've been through this same question, but like do you have a, in your clear in your mind the toughest day in getting to where you are today? Oh, that is a hard one. I think, um, as I mentioned before, like I'm a total people pleaser and up until I started Kin, I had been in basically industries where you hide your work. Investment banking, like it is completely confidential. You don't tell anyone about that stuff. Uh, same with consulting. It's based on confidentiality and you show your work to um, maybe like the board members or the management team, but it is pretty like secluded or isolated. And so even the idea of like launching Kin as a website terrified me because all of a sudden my work was for show and that anyone could poke holes in it if they wanted to. People I didn't know, people I knew, like all of a sudden it gave people the right to judge me for better or worse. So I think one of the scariest times for me, it absolutely terrified me, was actually when we launched our first product, um, which was contraception. And we had essentially gone out to PR and that caught really quickly and we were like on the flywheel of PR the first few weeks of launch. You get people who love you, love the product, understand why it's there, it's changing their lives, like people are actually saying all these things. And that's awesome. But you're never going to please everyone. And at the beginning, this was like pre-COVID times, there were a lot of doctors out there that were like, telehealth equals bad, therefore kin equals bad. And that was really hard for me to accept because I knew in my heart of hearts that I was well-intentioned, trying to do the right thing and keeping the patient safe. And we knew we were like doing everything we could to do that. And we had, but seeing whether it was comments or on Facebook or on ads, um, that was really hard for me to take because I wanted everyone to love me. I wanted everyone to see what we were trying to do. And I think like when someone goes, you know, your baby is ugly, you, you just like swell, like swell up and you're like, no, like, I don't know, go away. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, just, it's interesting because you're one of those people who always want to please everybody or at least please the people that are important to you because there's always going to be people going to detract. There's always detractors that don't care who you are. I mean, I, I, I've lived my life dealing with detractors. What do you do as a technique for anyone who's listening to this who's thinking about who might well be in this part of the journey themselves? What sort of techniques do you use to deal? Did you use to deal with those detractors? Yeah, I think I used to get caught up on like the surface level comments of like, telehealth is bad, it's not safe, blah, blah, blah. And I used to get hurt by it. But then when you actually look into those comments, dig into what they're actually saying, you realize that you can like factually and logically 
just refute a lot of it. Do, do you though? Do you actually go back and engage with them? It depends. It depends. Like feedback that you want to engage with, which is the experience is um, not perfect and there's ways we can improve it. Like that absolutely is amazing feedback. You want more of those people to tell you how to improve your product. And then there's people who don't try the product, judge it by its cover and just go, you know, telehealth is not safe. Therefore, you're not doing the right thing. Those people obviously haven't engaged with the product properly. They haven't seen all the things that we've done and put in place in order to like make the experience really, really safe and accessible. Um, and so ultimately, like I'm never going to convince those people because it's a philosophy thing. It's a it's like they didn't put in effort to look into a product. Why should I put in effort to try and convince them otherwise? My way of dealing with it was always like take a step back, trying to understand whether it's objective, constructive criticism or just criticism that actually isn't useful, isn't very constructive, things I should just not listen to. Because ultimately there is still 99% of reviews and 99% of emails that I get in my personal inbox. This is life-changing. This is amazing. I'm so glad you made this. I'm so glad. Like, I can't believe this wasn't here before. Um, And those are the people I care about. Like, I want to keep serving those people. I want to keep helping those people. And so the few detractors that we do have, some people are just not worth responding to or engaging with. It's funny. When I first started getting involved in social media, and in particular Twitter, um, this got long, going back a while, um, I used to fall into the trap and uh, I remember somebody from West Australia had a crack at me and uh, I said, I'm going to catch a plane and fly over there and I was ha- having an argument with him. I was really pissed off him. It was like a fuck you moment. Um, these days, I mean, I get many more detractors and I don't care. I couldn't care less about them, but um, I don't even respond to them. And probably to some extent, um, and you do get a bit weathered over time with these things, emotionally weathered. But in the beginning, it's very hard. Like you said, if someone calls your baby ugly, you get a little defensive and you feel like uh, confronting them. But if we go back to where you talked about earlier on when you were at reInventure, at the end of the day, you have to be open to constructive criticism and you've got to know when something's constructive quickly. You've got to be able to weed it out quickly when it's constructive or more importantly, non-constructive. But if it's constructive, you actually got to listen to it because it might actually help you, as you said earlier about the reinventure discussion, it actually helps you redefine or refine your, your outcomes, the things you're trying to produce, particularly if you actually believe in it like you do. You really want to help your subscribers, your customers, your clients, your audience. And um, if you keep bringing yourself back to that position, then it's easy to deal with these detractors, but you're going to get them all the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, in your business, can you explain where engineers fit into a business like yours? We are a technology company at heart. And so ultimately they are like the heart and soul of the product. And so a big part of what we do at Kin is we want everyone to really understand who they're building for, why they're building, um, what they're building. So it's not just handing over tasks or handing over features. We really want to get people to give us ideas in the team, understand what they're doing and like build really great experiences from a place of empathy rather than from a place of this is my job. One of the things we do, I really take pride on is making sure the voice of the customer and the voice of the patient is constantly heard in the organization. And that comes in the form of sharing all the types of emails that we get from patients, whether it's our customer service team or personal emails um, to the team to thank them for the work or to give input like ideas for improvement. Um, whether it's insights from surveys. And then we also have a Slack channel that is dedicated to all the different reviews that we get. So every time someone posts on product review for us, that goes straight into a Slack channel for the whole organization to see. Um, So for example, if you put a five-star review for us and you're like, this is life-changing, we see it instantly. Equally, if you say, hey, this is a three-star and these are the reasons why, we read that instantly as well and we address it instantly. 
it's very much like keeping the organization accountable for what they do, seeing the impact of what they do like day to day and seeing those views and responses and feedback come through. We're getting that every single day. So it's a constant reminder of like how we can continue to keep getting five-star reviews. And do you think that um, today female fertility uh, journey is still taboo? Yeah, I think like it depends on exactly where you're um, talking about. But I think when it comes to things like miscarriages, infertility, there is still ultimately an element of taboo. It's not something we like to talk about. We have definitely made progress. I think when you see the likes of, you know, Chrissy Teigen, um, a lot of celebrities coming out talking about their um, journey through infertility and their journey through miscarriages, that sort of awareness and them sharing their stories makes it so much easier for other people to feel okay and normal sharing theirs because it is something that is so normal. And because they're sharing their stories, hopefully it opens up a lot more. So you are seeing like more and more people talk about it, but I think like it's still definitely there and we've still got a really long way to go in terms of really normalizing that whole conversation. But it is exciting to see that we are making progress. Because I, I, I just was thinking as you were talking about, not taboo, but probably I use the wrong word, maybe taboo, but it's certainly something that gets buried a bit. Um, I was thinking about, um, I've got four sons, okay, and um, and I always wanted to have a daughter. And uh, one of my marriages, um, she got pregnant and um, and she she lost a child at five months, but it actually turned out to be a girl. And uh, so I, I, the way I look at it is I've had four sons, plus I had, a, I, in my view, I had a daughter who, who didn't survive. But um, I remember at the time the like the trauma that she suffered, not only the physical trauma, but the trauma she suffered was more uh, emotional about what people might say, her having lost a child at that period, at five months. Um, and there was compl- the reason she lost it was a whole lot of complications. But um, it, was a, it was a big deal. I'm going back uh, 30 years now. But I, I'm, I was always prepared to talk about it, but she, not to her, but to anybody. Um, she, but because I just didn't think, I, just, I, I thought something of it. I don't say, but I didn't think it was a bad thing to talk about. But she was extremely traumatized for years. Like it just stuck with her for many, many, many years. That had a massive effect on her mental health. Is that something, is that what we're talking about here? Like uh, sort of shining a light on these things and uh, what, what Kin does is not just on an individual basis, but shining a light on these things and saying, look, it's okay. And these things happen and uh, we've got to talk about them. I think, yeah, when it comes to like infertility and miscarriages, when you go through that, there's innately something, um, whether it's driven by society, um, personal pressure, whatever it is, or like family pressure, you kind of put it back on yourself. Like you might feel like it's your fault or you might feel like, you know, there's something wrong with you. And that's absolutely not right. And I think that's a lot of the times where the stigma might come from, where by normalizing it, we take away that shame, we take away that stigma. We make it normal because it's not anyone's fault. No one, you know, like she didn't do anything to make that happen. We need to talk about the stats on miscarriage. I think it's like one in five um, pregnancies do end in miscarriages, but we don't talk about that. As we're going through these experiences, we feel like we're isolated and that um, we've done something or that, you know, it's something that only happened to us because of X, Y, and Z reason. And so, yeah, that's what we're tackling. Like we want to have more conversations around this. We want people to feel, one, it's okay to talk about. And because it's okay to talk about, it's also okay to like seek support. It is going to be tough. But the more we talk about it, the more we open up to each other about it, the more we're able to get support. The more we're able to talk about it, the more hopefully better research and development will go into it to find better solutions to dealing with it as well. So yeah, that's like a big part of what we're trying to do with Ken. 
Well, that's a big mission. That's, <laughs> it that's, is. That's, that's, that's a good mission. That's a great mission. That that's one that goes on forever. But I want to ask you, uh, what are you seeing in the future for Kin? Like, what are you? For me, Kin has a really, really big mission, and like you said, it's it's huge, and it can probably go forever. And actually, I want it to. Um, I want Kin to be a generational brand. I want Kin to have a relationship with our users for 10 to 20 years throughout their whole reproductive journey and their whole fertility journey. Pretty open-ended, but I do want like people to feel like whenever they have questions or decisions to be made around like women's health, reproductive health, fertility health, that we're the first place that they want to come to, whether it's for support, whether it's for um, content and guidance, whether it's for products, whatever it is, we want to be there for them and we want to help guide them on that journey. I think there's still a long way to go. There's a lot to do. But um, ultimately, we really want to like keep empowering women and do that for years and years. To me, it looks like it's endless. I mean, the possibilities are endless. And uh, so well done. I, I, I want to thank you very much for allowing me to talk to you about this because it's uh, it's a it's a bit outside my bellywick normally, um, but it's actually opened my mind up to a whole lot of possibilities. And uh, I found the discussion really intriguing. I will always give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. I don't know if you've got a question for me, but if you have, you're far away. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, one of the things we're dealing with now is how to scale the business um, just from a team perspective as well. Um, and I'm sure you've experienced this every time you grow, whether it's from like three people to 10 people or like 20 people to 50 people, things ultimately break. I guess in your experience, what have you learned or like what did you focus on when you were going through those periods of scaling and like the team growing. One of the things that, that really sticks out, particularly in the wizard business, because that, that grew fairly rapidly. One of the things I, I noticed is that you can't always assume that I was never the CEO of the, any of the businesses, but I always had CEOs. And a CEO for year one and two may not end up being coming CEO for year three and four. And I, hopefully you're not CEO doesn't hear this and get upset with me. But um, but you got to have as the proprietor or the, you know, the owner, you got to have their preparedness to bit like you were talking about before, you've got to have a preparedness to not accept other ideas, but accept the fact that the business outgrows an individual and it could outgrow the individual philosophically as well. And you've got to be prepared to always do what is in the best interest of the business. I don't say the shareholders because what's in the best interest of the business is always in the best, in my opinion, is always in the best interest of the shareholders. And you always therefore have to move individuals around into the business that fits best with business. So the business will grow and the team that you had in year one, two, and three may not be the year yet, the team you have in year six. So my businesses, the teams that I had in um, it's particularly the wizard business, the senior team, only two people remained out of eight when I sold it to General Electric. Um, and the, the people who were there before were great guys and girls, really fantastic, but they just didn't suit the business as the business got bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, scale brings with it a whole lot of things that you don't need people just with energy and skills. All of a sudden you need patience and you need empathy and you need people who are really good psychologically with other people. Um, you need people who can fit into a team. You know, there's so many parts you have to think about and you have to be prepared, unfortunately, to let people go as well as recruit new people. And that's a difficult one because um, no one wants to say to someone, look, you don't fit into the philosophy of the business anymore. That's a really tough discussion to have with somebody. We hope everybody will stay there forever. And equally, you have to be prepared to go out and take a risk and find new people to come into your organisation, which is you start to say to yourself, wait a minute, is it better that I keep the person I know, even though I know the business is outgrowing that individual, 
than it is for me to go and find someone brand new who I don't really know, only know by reputation and or by interview, and take the risk of replacing this individual with that person. That's probably one of the biggest decisions you're going to have to make at a senior level as your business scales, is the timing right and what's the risk associated with it. There's risk on not replacing and there is risk on replacing. For me, I always relied on my business partners in those days, it was Kerry Packer and other people, who had far more experience in these things than I did. I, I always would go and sit down with Kerry and talk that through and I would never make a quick decision on it um, about replacing and or moving people on and or employing more people. It's the toughest part of scaling your business. That's getting the right people. Well, thank you very much. I actually love your concept. Um, it's interesting. Like your parents must be very proud of you. What's interesting is if I look at your whole story, where you started um, as a, a kid born here when your parents have been here for a year or two, to where you are today, immigrants like your parents who work so hard, who are always trying new things, the fact they left their country to come here, that's a new thing in itself. It's a big deal. Um, and then they produce children like yourself and your brother and you end up where you are. I'm never surprised. And so well done. Congratulations. And keep kicking ass. Go for it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Smalley. And production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.